Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. This is actually an introduction to the podcast, which was recorded earlier in the week. And I need to tell you why there's a bit of an introduction. The podcast deals with legislation involving abortion and the rights of husbands and wives in the marital relationship and the rights of mothers and fathers in relation to their children in the context of abortion. And I noted that the bill was heard this week. However, it was not heard this week, and um, the bill was delayed to next week. So we're going to cover part of the material related to the bill this week and then a part of it later. And I wanted to let you know if you're wanting to know, well, what happened to the bill, it was actually delayed a week. And with that as an introduction, I hope you will greatly enjoy this week's podcast on this very important piece of legislation. Thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty, and I'm delighted that you've joined me today as we turn our attention now away from the series that we've been doing on hope and purpose, which I hope you've enjoyed, to look at some legislation and try to put our understanding of some legislation now before the General Assembly in the context of the things that we've been talking about over the last several weeks. And in particular, there's a bill coming up, Senate Bill 494 by Senator Mark Pody and House Bill 1079 by Representative Jerry Sexton. And this week, I interviewed Jeff Schaefer, who is an honors graduate from Regent University Law School, spent 16 years at Alliance Defending Freedom, is at home in both the courtroom and in the world of academia. And this is his summation of what we are dealing with in House Bill 1079 that was heard in the Children and Family Subcommittee this week. What we're ultimately considering here is human meaning very predicates of civilization itself. You know, the the profound matters at stake here include whether there's even significance in being male or female. The reality of marriage and family is institutions that, of defining significance for personal identity and the boundaries of that. Whether there are divinely instituted and authoritative realities in this world at all that would serve to restrain the state's claims to omnipotence and defining power over all persons and things. These are no small matters, but they're very much bound up within the kinds of decisions that the court has been uh, producing over the last number of decades. Wow. I mean, what kind of bill is it that deals with this kind of stuff of such gravity? And what decisions was uh, Mr. Schaefer referring to? And the particular decision that uh, Senate Bill 494, House Bill 1079, is directed to is the United States Supreme Court's decision in 1976 in Planned Parenthood of Central Missouri versus Danforth. Now, in that case, the court held, and, and keep in mind, this is what, three years after Roe versus Wade, 
the court held that the woman's right of privacy to make an abortion decision without interference by the state now extended into the marital relationship such that it was unconstitutional for the state of Missouri to say that a woman could not make an abortion decision without the consent of her married husband who was the father of her child, of their child. Yes, you heard that correctly. Now, how did we get to this point? And Jeff Schaefer is going to give us the history of how we got to this point and how we've lost our way from where the decisions on human sexuality and the family and marriage and procreation first came. So listen in as he describes this important history that leads to the Danforth decision. So going back a number of years, um, the, the Supreme Court in Griswold case, Griswold versus Connecticut, had ruled uh, unconstitutional the Connecticut law that banned the use of contraception by married couples. While the Griswold case can be viewed as, we might say, bad constitutional law and even bad policy, at least its rhetoric was favorable uh, toward the sacred and unique relationship of man and wife. And then in 1972, uh, the court ruled in Eisenstadt versus Baird that unmarried people have the same right to possess contraception as married couples. So Justice Brennan writing in that case had said that if the right of privacy means anything, it's the right of the individual, married or single, to be freed from unwarranted governmental intrusion in a matter so fundamentally affecting a person and so on and so forth, as you had earlier recited. Whether to bear or beget a child is a decision that the government should have nothing to do with, whether the person is married or single. Right. Now, this, by the way, notably repudiated the basis for the earlier Griswold decision that had rested, remember, mm-hmm. at least rhetorically, on the sacred and private nature of the relationship of husband and wife. The court in Eisenstadt changed course on that and impliedly denied that there was any unique meaning or even reality to the marriage covenant, making that relationship but a presumably just a nominal association of two independent individuals who remain unattached from each other. And as a result, they're indistinguishable from any other two individuals, that at least in ways that are relevant to sexual life and their privacy interests. So there's no meaning any longer in the marital relationship as such. There was in the Griswold case, when we got to Eisenstadt, it was gone. Right. And that, of course, was then the lead up to the infamous 1973 case of Roe and Wade, the mm-hmm. year after Eisenstadt, that had asserted the constitutional right of abortion for all women. And that then several years later led to the Danforth case. Well, there you go. And, and let, me, let me just ca- encapsulate and summarize what Jeff was saying. In, in 1965, in the case of Griswold versus Connecticut, uh, there was a, a law dealing with contraceptive, access to contraceptives affecting a man and a woman and their inability to uh, get that contraceptive. I, I assume perhaps it was driven by a, a Catholic view of contraception up in Connecticut. Uh, but in any event, what Jeff was saying was that the, the idea there was that, you know, when a man and a woman come together they create something that is unique to them. It has its own jurisdictional authority. Remember, we've talked a lot about Abraham Kuyper and the concept of sphere sovereignty and that the family has a jurisdiction, an authority, a sovereignty from God, 
for which they are directly accountable to God. It is separate from that of government, to which government and those who lead government are directly accountable to God. And, and so the Supreme Court, without saying it, in the Griswold case in 1965, was saying, you know, wait a minute, wait a minute, the state has now intruded into the jurisdiction of the family and their decision whether to bear or beget a child. And then ultimately in Eisenstadt, the court said, well, gosh, this is going to get in the way of the right of abortion, so we better break up the concept of a marital unity and evacuate from the concept of marriage any idea that it's anything more than just an association of two, two, two people. It's uh, roommates with benefits, I guess you could say. And uh, that then opened the door to the Roe decision the next year. And here's what you're going to find really fascinating about Eisenstadt in relationship to Roe. If you don't think the Supreme Court knows what it's doing and where it's going, listen to this. And, and the appearance in Eisenstadt of the phrase about uh, the right of the individual to be free of government intrusion into the question of whether to bear or beget a child was an, an insertion that more or less facilitated the outcome in Roe. That is, at the time that Justice Brennan was writing this decision, the court had already granted review. So, there we have it. Eisenstadt was an intentional precursor to Roe versus Wade to extend the privacy decision to the woman being able to make the unilateral decision to abort her child without any interference from the state. You see now how far away we've come from Griswold where, where the right to contraceptive uh, was based on the fact that government shouldn't be interfering into this unity, this relationship, to now creating an autonomy related to sexuality which requires ultimately and would require the destruction of marriage. And that's what led to Danforth. Here is actually the opening statement in the Danforth case in 1976, three years after Roe versus Wade. This case is a logical and anticipated corollary to Roe versus Wade. In other words, the court said, Ultimately, what we said in Roe and what we said in Eisenstadt, Eisenstadt now leads us to have to consider this right of privacy and autonomy and the now outright destruction of the relationship between a man and a woman in marriage and a failure by the court. Now here's the important point. This is why Jeff Schaefer said we're dealing with weighty, significant things from the clip I played for you at the beginning of this podcast. Because the court was saying there is nothing that naturally adheres, nothing that naturally arises, nothing that naturally results from a man and woman mutually agreeing to commit themselves to one another. Nothing arises that is is greater than the two of them and there's nothing in that relationship that arises naturally with respect to their uh, children to their offspring to their unborn and born offspring nothing naturally arises in other words, there are no natural rights and duties and privileges that arise between a man and a woman 
when they agree to marry one another and commit themselves to one another, commit themselves to a unity that the court, see, has just broken apart. The court has, in fact, intruded to divorce a husband and wife when it comes to, to reproduction, to their offspring, to procreation. And, and now they say it's, it's going to have to extend to wipe out any rights, duties, and privileges as it may exist between a biological parent and their biological child. Now here's what Jeff Schaefer had to say about that point. You know, what we've seen is with this abolition from law of the significance of male and female to marriage and thus constitutionally forbidding that primal institution mm -hmm. to permissibly orient and guide the public mind as the family, the human being, it's profoundly consequential. And by the way, you know, if marriage is merely an arbitrary political creation, not a natural reality, it is ominously unclear to me why the natural parent-child bond itself is one that we should expect over the long term to remain free of political meddling and interference and the like. Well, there you have it. Now you know why Mr. Schaefer said at the top of the podcast, the quote I played at the top of the podcast, that we're dealing here with very fundamental matters of what it means to be human, the very foundations of civilization. Why as Christians do we believe that? Because God created man and woman. And by creating man alone, he said, this is not good. And so he created from Adam a diversity, a difference, out of unity. The very existence of man and woman as male and female is a manifestation of the glory of God bearing witness to us, as Paul says in Romans chapter 1, of God. And the procreation that takes place between men and women is part of the creative, generative aspect of the, of the nature and the glory of God itself, with the Son being the only begotten of the Father, yet from all time, being in relationship between Son and Father, and the proceeding from them of the Holy Spirit. The generative aspects of God Himself are seen when men and women come together, and that's what we learn about God and about man in the very first chapter of His book to us. And when we destroy what it means to be male and female, when we destroy what it means to procreate, when we destroy what it means to be a parent, a mother, and a father, then we have destroyed the very foundation upon which God intended His eschatology to fill the earth, to continue forming the earth, to turn the rest of the wilderness outside the Garden of Eden into a temple garden where he could be and dwell with his people. That's what we're dealing with. And if our legislators don't see that, then I can only sadly conclude that somehow they do not see in God and in his making of male and female and in his procreative coupling of them to produce children the glory of God. They don't see it. And when that's true of our Christian legislators, 
that means in a sense, my friend, that the glory of God has departed. Ichabod is the word the Old Testament uses, for the glory has departed. This is why we are dealing with something so fundamental with this bill. And yet it's going to face a tough road in, in getting through the legislature. So we need your prayer for the sponsors. We need your prayer for me. We need your prayer for our legislators. Next week, we're going to come back and look at some other provisions in the bill to understand some of the constitutional aspects of what we're dealing with here. So I hope you'll, you'll come back next week, and uh, I, think, I think you'll actually get a really good um, civic-slash-constitutional lesson in the context of real-life legislation that goes to the very fundamental propositions that undergird our Constitution. So I hope you have a blessed Easter weekend. Christ has risen. He is Lord. The new creation has begun. The old order is passing away. The new one has arrived. Blessings, and I'll look forward to talking to you next week. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.